go ahead and uh, be turning with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking, looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So while you're turning there, I'll just go ahead and uh, uh, echo what Adam said. Uh, I first met the Horbox as a member of Fisherville Baptist Church. Um, we had a lovely community there, and it was great to get to know them. And uh, so excited to see what God has uh, led Don and Autumn to come do here at uh, Harrison Hills Baptist Church. And uh, just miss them at Fisherville is the only thing. So, um, uh, and it was a blessing to uh, serve in prison ministry there at Fisherville with uh, with Adam. Um, there's just nothing quite like uh, walking into a... Uh, into a room and going to the back of it, and then all of a sudden behind you flows in about, what would you say, usually about a hundred uh, incarcerated men, and our job is to uh, preach God's Word to them, and they're standing between us and the exit, so it's a little bit intimidating sometimes, but uh, uh, I was blessed to hear Adam uh, preach a number of times uh, in the prison, and um, just excited for what he's going to be able to do in the coming years uh, for Harrison Hills Baptist Church. Uh, through preaching God's word. So, have you found Luke chapter sixteen yet? Yeah. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and pray uh, before we get started. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to address these uh, men and women, Father, and boys and girls, uh, with your word, Lord. Father, what we need today is not to hear from me, but to hear from you, Father, through the preaching of your word, Father. Lord, uh, as much as is appropriate, Father, I pray that you would push me aside, Father, so that your word can speak clearly, Lord. I pray, Father, that your word would convict hearts, Father. I pray, Father, that your word would stir passions for the gospel in our souls, Lord. Lord, um, may we, as we look on how to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel this morning, may you uh, impress upon our hearts how we can do that very thing. It is in your name that I pray. Amen. So, one of the things that I really enjoyed growing up was reading mystery novels. I don't know if any any of you uh, enjoyed reading those too. I remember growing up, I had a whole case full of the Hardy Boy books. Do any of y'all remember the Hardy Boy books? My family had an entire set of about 60 of them. And they would fill about two bookcases about this wide, about two or three shelves deep. I loved reading them. I loved reading every word of them by the time uh, I was before the age of 10 even. Uh, we also had a huge set of Encyclopedia Brown uh, books. and uh, Encyclopedia was always trying to solve some kind of mystery and he would use his deductive and problem-solving skills in order to, in order to solve it. So Now that I'm uh, a little bit older, I don't get to read many mystery novels, but I still love it when I encounter a good mystery. And you guys are going to see that not today. Uh, we are going to actually be using our time this morning to solve a mystery from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, that the author presents to us. So, one thing that's uh, kind of common to all mystery novels is uh, a couple things. They call it, they follow the set pattern, right? And so, usually starting out, you're introduced to the main characters, right? That's the first thing that happens. And then you keep reading, and all of a sudden you're presented with this mystery, Right? Something happens, something unexplainable uh, occurs, something uh, catches us by surprise, and we don't really expect it or even know how to explain it all. But there's a, a, there's a mystery that needs to be solved. Well, what happens then is these main characters that we've already been introduced start trying to solve this mystery by looking for clues, right? And so they'll usually find a few different clues, and then they'll be uh, eventually trying to put all these clues together in order to come to a resolution, Right? And so this is the general pattern of, of mystery novels. We look at characters, uh, we encounter the mystery, we start looking for clues, and then we seek a resolution to the story. So this pattern is actually going to set our, uh, our pattern, that, it's going to be the pattern that we use in order to encounter the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. So first, uh, let's go ahead and get started by looking at some of our main characters. The first character that we're going to encounter in Luke 16 is Jesus himself. We're going to read the passage in just a minute, but I'm going to take a few minutes to introduce Jesus to you. So we all have a good idea of who Jesus is, but coming to this point in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is actually traveling towards the city of Jerusalem. And you all know why he's traveling towards Jerusalem? He's going there to celebrate Passover. But this is going to be a Passover like none other 
because five days after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he is going to be hung on a Roman cross. He's going to be killed. Now the Romans think that they knew why they were sacrificing, or not sacrificing in their minds, they think they knew why they were putting Jesus to death on a Roman cross. The Jewish authorities thought that they knew why they were putting Jesus to death on a Roman cross. It was because they didn't like him or like his message. But we know through the Bible the real reason why Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. Jesus was dying a substitutionary uh, death for you and for me and for everybody else who would believe in his name, right? He gave his life for others. He didn't look out for his own interest, uh, but was looking out for the interest of others, right? And so this is the main thing that we need to, must understand about Jesus, the character of Jesus in our Bibles. But there's a lot of other things that we can uh, understand about Jesus through, the, through God's Word. Let's, uh, let's look just at, uh, think briefly about the Gospel of Luke. Um, if we were to read through Luke, we'd find a number of things. You don't have to turn here, but uh, listen to me as I read. Uh, I'm going to look at Luke 12, 22 through um, 34. Listen as I read this. You can flip there if you want, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. We're not going to really reference back here. But in Luke 12, 22, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither reap nor sow. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory are not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven, in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus died a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. We've also learned that Jesus was a great teacher, wasn't he? Uh, in this particular instance, he told his followers, don't worry about the things of life because your Father in heaven is faithful to provide for them. It's a wonderful teaching. Jesus is a wonderful teacher. We see that all throughout the Gospels. What else can we see about Jesus? Well, uh, in, in, in the similar vein, uh, in his teaching ministry, he gave this par uh, parable called the parable, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And so you probably are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. This Samaritan man is traveling down this road and he encounters a man who is in dire straits. He's been beaten and robbed as he was traveling on his journey. And this Samaritan in Jesus's parable stops and sees the man and has compassion on him and a great risk to himself takes him to an end. And at the end, he uh, puts forth the money for the man's care out of his own pocket. And he tells the innkeeper, I'm so concerned about the welfare of this man. Give him whatever he needs. And when I come back through here, I will settle his account. And so Jesus gives us this parable of the of the good Samaritan to, as an illustration of how we could, should be concerned with the lives of others. What else does Jesus uh, can we learn about Jesus's character as we go through Luke? Well, uh, we know from the very beginning of uh, the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was also tempted by Satan in every way, and he was actually found righteous. Right? He was tempted in every way that me and you are, and far beyond, and that Jesus would not yield to the devil's command and and fallen to sin himself. He was perfectly righteous in everything that he did. And so four things that are going to be crucial as we encounter Luke 16 to remember about Jesus, our main character, is that he was going to give his life as a sacrifice for others, that he was a fantastic teacher, um, and that he was tempted in every way and yet found without sin. 
One more thing that's important to remember about Jesus in order to uh, understand Luke 16 is that Jesus liked to teach in parables, didn't he? Now, a parable is a, a story that a teacher will tell in order to illustrate a big point that he is making, right? Jesus does this often. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that you see Jesus teaching in parables all of the time, right? So a couple things to keep in mind about parables, and we're going to look at a parable in Luke 16, is that uh, first of all, parables you have to uh, you have to be careful of over-interpreting them, right? Uh, not everything in every parable stands for something um, outside of the parable. Uh, sometimes Jesus just has a singular main point that he wants us to draw from a parable. And everything else in the parable is in service to that one point. Not everything stands for something that we should draw some kind of spiritual application from. Another thing that we need to keep in mind as we look at parables is we need to give the parable giver, in this case is Jesus, leeway in order to tell his story. Sometimes parables, uh, these stories that teachers will tell, don't always align perfectly with reality, right? And we have to, as the receivers of the parable, we have to be okay with that. We have to give the teacher leeway in order to tell the story, in order to make his point. So we've been introduced to one of our characters. There's really only two characters in our mystery this uh, this morning. The other character is the shrewd servants. That doesn't sound good just from the start. Let's introduce ourselves to the shrewd servant by beginning reading Luke 16. Okay, so Luke 16, starting in verse one, he, that's Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And so we've been introduced to Jesus so far, and now we've been introduced to the shrewd manager. And I think it's safe to say our general evaluation of this shrewd manager is that this man is a scumbag, Right? I mean, this man is dishonest. He is stealing from the master uh, for his own gain. Let's give a little recap to what this man has done. He's, uh, he's the steward of his master. So basically what this means is that his master had lent out money to uh, a variety of people, most likely farmers, and he was going to be repaid from those farmers, and he couldn't keep up with all that he had done himself, so he hired this manager, this steward, uh, in order to keep track of these accounts. And he found out that this uh, steward was not doing a good job keeping track of the master's money. And he says, you know what? I, I just can't afford to have somebody in your position making these kinds of errors that you are, so you're done. You're fired. And the manager turns his focus inward and says, how am I going to provide for myself? And he's not. he already knows he's at least in his mind, he's not going to be able to work hard. He, nobody else is going to trust him as a manager. And he said he's too rich or too has too much pride to beg. And so he hatches this scheme, right? And before he is actually done with his managerial duties, while he's still doing that, uh, he hatches this scheme in order to win himself some friends for when he is no longer the manager of this master's house. And he goes to the master's debtor and he says, Guys, you you used to owe a hundred of uh, bars of wheat uh, or a hundred dollars or whatever. Let's cut that down by 80%. Now you only owe 20, right? Now, the other week I I helped a friend of mine moved here into the area and uh, I, I was thinking about him and thinking about my sermon and I would be willing to suspect if somebody were to show up uh, to his front door 
uh, a week or two after he moved into his new house and said, you know that, that huge mortgage that you took out in order to purchase this home for your family? Let's cut it by 80%. He's through the roof, right? He is excited. He loves this news, right? This is good news. Any of you, if you have a, a debt in that magnitude, would be ecstatic if somebody were to show up and tell you that. But here's the problem. We might be excited if we were on the receiving end of that, but the master would not be excited. For my friend, the owner of the note at the bank would not be excited if one of their managers cut his uh, mortgage by 80%, right? See, that's the thing. I think we can all agree we would love to be on the receiving end of this, but we can all actually know intuitively that what this dishonest manager does is just that. It is dishonest. It is deceitful. It is reprehensible. In fact, I think we could go so far as to say that there is nothing in this man's character as we have him presented in this parable that we would want to emulate in our own lives. This man is a scumbag, the worst possible type of person, right? And so, so far we've, uh, we're going through our, ministry, uh, our mystery and we've uh, looked at two characters. We've looked at Jesus and we've been introduced to this shrewd manager. Now let's look at the, the mystery. The mystery I think we're confronted with in verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He's just told this parable and he says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This is a little bit difficult for us to understand and gather just to make sure that we're all on the same board. Jesus has told this parable of this dishonest, shrewd manager who has swindled his master out of his fortune in order to make friends for himself in order that he would be protected and provided for in his future. What he has done is dishonest. And Jesus tells his followers, you see that manager, this reprehensible person who's just done this dishonest thing? I want you guys to be like that. And it doesn't make sense, right? We're all sitting there reading this. At least I am. And I'm thinking, what in the world is Jesus getting at here? Why would I want to be like a dishonest, reprehensible steward like this man is? It's a mystery, isn't it? Why would Jesus tell, uh, hold this man up as a model for his followers to emulate? It doesn't make sense, does it? From what we know of uh, Jesus and his character, Jesus has just told his disciples, I read it for you back in Luke chapter 12, don't worry about the needs that you have in this world because God is going to be faithful in order to provide for you. Don't always look out for number one. Look out for others. God is faithful and just to take care of you. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan didn't think about his own needs but was generous with what he had and took care of the needs of others, right? This is the opposite of what this shrewd manager has done, right? And of course, we're not open to interpreting whether Jesus was right or wrong in his evaluation of this servant, are we? Because we've already seen from the temptation in accountant Luke that Jesus was without sin, right? And so we're left with a real mystery here. What in the world does Jesus mean by telling us to emulate this shrewd, dishonest scumbag of a manager? If you're used to reading the Gospels, and I can tell from, tell, uh, tell from the signs that you're going through Mark's Gospel, if you keep going through the other Gospels, you realize that Jesus does this type of thing quite often in his ministry, doesn't he? He, he does things that catches us off guard that we're not expecting, right? There's another uh, instance of a parable in which he compares God to, uh, to a dishonest judge. Uh, a widow is looking for a judge uh, to rule in a, a case that she has. But the judge won't do it. And the idea behind the passage is that he's waiting on a bribe from this widow in order to buy justice. And <clears throat> the widow is persistent and keeps asking him. And the judge finally says, you know what? Fine, just get off my back and I will give you the justice that you deserve without the bribe that I'm looking for. And Jesus says he compares uh, God to this dishonest judge. And that leaves us floored. We're thinking, how in the world is God like a dishonest judge? On another occasion, Jesus is talking about the, the, the kingdom of heaven. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like, a, uh, is like a treasure in a field. And this man, this hired worker, is going out and digging in the field and finds this treasure. 
And what does he do? He doesn't go and tell the owner about the treasure in the field. He goes and he sells all that he has in order to buy this treasure for himself and to uh, cheat the owners out of this great wealth that was in his rightfully owned field. Jesus is all the time doing things like this. He's, uh, he, he fills his, his uh, parables and his stories and his teaching with the most shadiest characters that you can possibly imagine, doesn't he? In fact, this happens so often that uh, I was began studying the life of Jesus a little bit more intently at the beginning of the year. And through my studies, I've decided I actually want write, to uh, write a book called The Jesus I Don't Understand. Because as I go through the life of Jesus, I'm finding that time after time after time, Jesus is doing things that I just don't understand what he is getting at. And Luke 16 is very near the top of that list. What is going on here? I've been a Christian for 27 years, and there are still things that I read in the Gospels where after reading through it, I have to stop and take a break and read it again and be like, what exactly is Jesus getting at here? So we've been introduced to our characters. We've looked at Jesus. We've looked at the shrewd servant. We've encountered our mystery. Jesus tells his followers to emulate the actions of this shrewd servant. And we're left wondering what's going on. Well, let's start, uh, let's start looking for some clues. We're going to encounter two clues uh, from this passage, and they both come from verse uh, 9. So let's look at uh, Luke 16, verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So two clues. What's the first clue? The first clue comes in this word, friends. Okay? So what are friends? Well, I think we all have a good idea of what friends are. Friends are people that you like to spend time with. Uh, you usually share similar interests with your friends. You like to uh, hang out with one another. Sometimes a friend can help you out if you are in a bind. They can come to your aid and to your rescue. Um, I have tons of friends at Fisherville. Uh, I'm sure Adam has gotten to be friends with you. I hope I am uh, uh, able to interact with you all uh, during later and become become better friends with you all. We all have an uh, innate uh, knowledge of what a, a friend is, but there's something a little bit different about these friends uh, that Jesus is referencing here, isn't there? Because these aren't just friends like me and you would be friends or like the other friends that you might know. These are friends in heavenly places, aren't they? They are friends that are able to help you out in heavenly places. Now, you all look like wonderful people. I'm sure that y'all are some of God's best saints. But even still, I'm not sure that anybody I'm looking at now has the power to help me out in heaven, right? Is anybody able to do that in here? Does anybody got some strings that they can pull for me in, in heavenly places? I, I don't think so. There's something else about these friends that, are, that is going on here. Uh, these, are, these are friends that, are, that have some connections in heaven. So who exactly are these friends? Are these friends perhaps angels? Uh, is Jesus telling us to make friends with angels in order uh, that they might help us out in heaven if we need it? Well, I, I don't think so. From everything that we read in Scripture, uh, the angels aren't really there to serve us for us to be friends with. They are there to serve God, right? And so if we're thinking about who these friends are in heavenly places, we might first think of angels, but that, that's not really uh, likely. Well, perhaps it's other saints from the past. Maybe it's friends from the past that have uh, already made it to heaven. They, they have died and lived faithfully and found themselves in heaven. Maybe our friends in heavenly places refers to these people. Well, then again, we run into the same problem. None of our friends that have gone on to heavenly places are going to be able to pull any strings for us, right? They are the ones that are in need of the strings pulled for them, right? We are all the same before God. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. Our friends in heaven have no strings that they can pull for us. Perhaps let's, perhaps let's look at one last option. Maybe our friends in heaven, maybe this is Jesus' veiled way of, of referring to himself, maybe. You know, uh, we consider Jesus to be a friend. He is our friend in heavenly places. He is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, maybe Jesus is that uh, friend that we're supposed to uh, look to to pull strings for us in heavenly places. That might be a good option, but there's a problem there too, isn't there? 
Because here's the thing. We don't do favors for Jesus in order for him to do favors for us in heaven, right? We don't do things for Jesus in order to earn his grace, right? And that's what essentially Jesus is telling us to do in this passage. Make friends for yourself in heavenly places. But that doesn't describe our relationship with Jesus Christ at all, does it? And so we're left wondering, Jesus tells us to make friends in in heavenly places. Who exactly are these friends that Jesus is is telling us to make? You all ready for the big reveal? Who are these friends? I actually think it's nobody. We're not looking for friends in heavenly places. What we have to do is actually read between the lines of what Jesus uh, is telling us to do. He's not telling us to look for actual friends in heaven. What he's doing, he's pulling this friends language from this parable, right? The shrewd manager was making friends for himself with, uh, with his master's money that would protect him in the future. Well, that's actually the principle that Jesus is wanting us to learn. He is wanting us to prepare ourselves for eternity, right? And so our, the friends that the shrewd manager makes is actually us preparing ourselves for eternity. Okay, so that's our first clue, our our friends. Jesus is telling us to prepare ourselves for eternity. Let's think about our second clue. Our second clue comes from the words unrighteous wealth. Okay, now, uh, most of you probably know what you know what friends are. I I have an inkling that you probably understand. You hopefully don't have any, but you probably have an inkling what unrighteous wealth is, right? I mean, to me, this sounds like ill-gotten wealth, right? And so Jesus is saying, followers, you need to use this ill-gotten wealth in order to make friends for yourself in the kingdom of heaven. And yet here we found a clue, but we kind of have a hard time understanding what this clue is telling us, right? What in the world does Jesus mean by telling us to acquire unrighteous wealth in order to win friends for ourselves in heaven? I mean, what exactly is Jesus asking us to do here, right? I mean, we are to go out and acquire ill-gotten wealth. Are we supposed to hold up a gas station or make a drug deal, perhaps? What, what exactly is this unrighteous wealth that Jesus is telling us to pursue? Well, I think it's the same solution as the solution that we gave for the friends. The unrighteous wealth in this instance isn't the wealth that we go out and get on our own. It actually is coming from the parable, right? See, we can all understand how the Master, or not the master, the, uh, the shrewd servant's wealth was unrighteous, right? It was unrighteous because he had actually stolen it from the master, correct? And so Jesus is telling us to use unrighteous wealth in order to make friends for us in heaven. So what does Jesus actually mean by unrighteous wealth? I think he just means the resources that we have at our own disposal, okay? Uh, it would be helpful. Uh, you know, my Bible doesn't do this. I doubt any of yours do. But it would help us understand this parable if we actually were to take a pen and put uh, quotation marks around the words friends and unrighteous wealth. And in fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles uh, today, I would suggest you do that. Take it and uh, do these little scare quote quotation marks around friends and unrighteous wealth. Because that would help us understand that Jesus is actually referring to something else here. You can call this your CCEV version, maybe your KC Croy edited version. All right. And so we're looking at this unrighteous wealth. Let's keep on looking at uh, verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, you can put quotations and marks around that as well. Who will entrust to you the true riches? And so Jesus is actually saying, uh, use the possessions, use the resources that you have at your disposal right now in order to propel yourself for the kingdom. So we've introduced ourselves to the main characters, Jesus and the shrewd manager. We've encountered our mystery. Jesus tells you, emulate this shrewd manager. There's something in his character that he wants his followers to emulate. And not only that, did you notice in verse nine, this or verse eight, this takes me, uh, still takes me off guard. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. This is another way I think Jesus is making his uh, the point that he's trying to make here. He's saying, you guys need to be like the sons of this world. 
Now, Pastor Adam's been here for several months with you. I wonder how many times have you heard him proclaim to this congregation, you guys need to be like the world. Has that ever happened? And yet here we find Jesus in our parable saying, I wish my followers were more like the sons of this world. And it catches us off guard. It's the mystery. And so we've also seen our two clues. We've seen uh, friends in heavenly places and we've seen unrighteous wealth. Now let's get to our resolution. What is our resolution? Well, I think we're probably beginning to put a little bit of the picture that Jesus has in mind together here. The resolution to the mystery that we have is Jesus wants us to uh, to utilize the resources at, at our disposal in order to prepare for eternity, right? Because you see, this is exactly what the shrewd manager has actually done in effect. Jesus isn't looking at this shrewd manager and saying, my followers, I want you to look at this man and learn how to cheat and steal uh, for everything that you think you need in order to get your way. Uh, I want you to cheat and steal uh, in order to provide your way in the world. We already know that Jesus said, don't worry about the things of this world. So he's not telling his followers to cheat and steal in order to get ahead in life. What is he actually pointing them to this shrewd manager for? He is telling them, I want you guys to follow this man's example and utilizing the resources at your disposal in order to prepare yourself for the future. Okay? Do you see how that works? You know one way that I like to kind of put this? Leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. Now, how do I get there? Leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. Well, I think the greatest resource that any of us have is actually our life. That's the way that we can refer to all of our resources, our, our time and our talents and our money. Uh, all of our life. This is our resource that God has given us. What about for the sake of the gospel? Where eternity in heaven is all about glorifying God. And how is God's glory always mediated to us through Christ and the gospel, right? And so that's why I say the main point, the resolution of this passage is the is the phrase leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. Now, let's look at consider two more questions as we as we do this. First of all, why in the world would Jesus tell a parable like this in order to teach a point like this? Well, I think it's very simple. Jesus is telling this parable in this way simply because it's unforgettable, right? Will any of you ever forget when Jesus tells us in Luke 16, I want you to be like this scumbag of a manager? It's unforgettable, right? And since the parable is unforgettable and Jesus' principle from it is unforgettable, that means that the lesson that we're supposed to learn from it is unforgettable as well. We are to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. One more question. Well, what does this actually look like? to leverage my life for the sake of the gospel. Well, it can look like a lot of things. For one thing, I think it means to give generously of the monetary, uh, monetary resources that God has given you. Give generous to the ministries of this church and to those who are around you. Give generously of your talents, right? Give generously of the things that God has gifted you to do. How about just take advantage of the situations that you find yourself in life? You know, Adam uh, is a pilot. He finds himself in a in a cockpit with other pilots. I don't know if he actually does this or not or if it's appropriate, but he can take advantage of the situation that he finds himself in life, right? These other pilots are stuck with him for six or eight or however many hours a day, and he can leverage the opportunities that God has given him, just the, just the situation that God has put him to in life and share the gospel with them. With them. God puts each and every one of you in situations all the time that can be leveraged for the sake of the gospel, for you to share your faith with somebody else or for you to encourage another brother or sister and with the word of God. Leverage your life for the sake of the gospel. So I can talk in these vague terms about what it means to leverage your life for the sake of the gospel, but what does it actually mean for your life? Why well, I can't exactly answer that question. I thought of a couple stories that uh, I, I hope maybe will uh, begin to illustrate uh, this to you. So a couple of examples of leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel. A couple of years ago, I attended a luncheon uh, from the university that I graduated from. I graduated from North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a wonderful school. And I attended this uh, luncheon for the alumni. And 
heard an address by the president. And in the president's address, he, he told us a remarkable story that I'm probably never going to forget. He said that he went into the uh, um, donor alumni uh, office of, of his school one time and said, guys, I, I want you to tell me, out of all our, all our, all our alumni, all the people who have uh, donated to the school, who has donated the most number of times? Not who has donated the most money, but who has donated the most number of times to North Greenville University? And what he found out was that there was this uh, student who graduated from the school uh, nearly 60 years before that. He graduated from North Greenville University before it was a university, before it was a college. He graduated while it was still chartered to be a high school in upstate South Carolina. And for the past 60 years, this man had given over 200 times to North Greenville University. Now, it was never very much. It was always about 15 or $20, but over 200 times in 60 years. And the president of the school said, I've got to meet this man. He still lived in the area. And so he drove out to this, old, uh, this man's house. He said he'll never forget what it was like to visit that man. He drove up, uh, drove up to this small two-bedroom house on a highway in between Greer in Greenville, South Carolina, and walked out to meet this man. This man worked at a tire plant uh, just outside of Greenville, South Carolina for over 40 years. The president of my university said when he walked into the man's house, it was one of the most sparsely furnished uh, homes that he has ever been in before. <clears throat> and yet this man was able to give over 200 times to North Greenville University. If you added up all of his donations, he was able to almost give almost $6,000 to the school. So this man that lived in this little two-bedroom shack on a highway between Greenville and Greer, South Carolina, was able to donate this much of his income and his wealth. What the president found out was every time the man had about 15 or $20 to spare, he would write a check to the, to the university in order to donate it for him. And the president asked him, why did you do this? I mean, why did you spend your, your life giving your excess to the university? And the man's uh, response blew him away. He said, it's because North Greenville made such a gospel difference in my life. I remember the gospel was taught when I was a student there, and I want to contribute to the gospel ministry of this university. That is leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you have more than anybody else or more to give, but it means that you take what you do have and you leverage it for the sake of the gospel. Let me share another story with you. This one's from a little bit uh, closer to home. I want to tell you about a man named Willard Joyner. Willard Joyner is my father-in-law. He's Autumn's father. I've known Willard Joyner for 12 years. And let me tell you some things about Willard Joyner. Uh, for most of my wife's um, life growing up, they would spend, she, I originally said one Sunday a month, um, but she told me it was actually more than one Sunday a month. Uh, so a couple Sundays every month, her family would actually all get up early and they wouldn't go to church. They would go to the nursing home before they went to church. And they would go and they would uh, sing for the people in the nursing home. They would, uh, uh, Willard would actually uh, take recordings of the previous week's sermon and actually pass them out for the people in the nursing home who couldn't make it to church themselves so that they could hear God's word preached. Uh, and these Sundays that he went and uh, ministered at the nursing home were the Sundays that he actually got to sleep in. Because if he wasn't going to the nursing home, he was showing up at the actual church early because he did sound ministry. You see, Willard Joyner spent his entire career working for the phone company in Greenville, North Carolina. And he never really had very much money. He used the income that he got to, to raise his family and to contribute to his uh, farm back home. He never really had very much money to give to anybody, but he knew what he did have, and that was time and talents, right? And so he would go and visit the nursing home before church. You know, uh, Autumn and I, when we're on our way to church, we're, we have to do everything that we can just to show up 10 minutes late to church, right? You probably know the feeling. And yet this man was uh, t getting his family up early on a Sunday morning, going and ministering in these nursing homes, showing up 
on Wednesday and Saturday nights in order to do sound ministry at his church. If you want an example of what it means to leverage your life for the sake of the gospel, think of a man like Willard Joyner. He leveraged his talents and the things that God has given him for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you one more story along this line. Uh, a couple guys have their names uh, written down. Their names are John Cortines and Gregory Balmer. Now, you might not have ever heard of Jonathan Cortines and Gregory Balmer. Let me tell you about them. These two guys were um, enrolled in the Harvard School of Business. Okay? So they were enrolled in this elite business school as MBAs. They, that's, what the, that, that's what they were pursuing. And so these were uh, elite business students. And they had gotten into Harvard University. They were on the fast track to making tons of money in their lives, right? And so while they were in the middle of school, though, they began to have questions about why they were there doing that because they began to listen to the hopes and dreams of their classmates, and they realized that they were heading towards a very lucrative career but a very empty and hollow life, right? And so both of these guys were Christians, and they actually said, you know, let's, while we're in the midst of our studies at Harvard Business School, let's do a study of the Gospels and actually find out what Jesus tells us about how we should spend the money, uh, what our money, fi- uh, the, what our money should finance, what hope and dreams our money should finance. And what they came away with was amazing. They came away learning their study in the Gospel. They found out they've been uh, confronted with the wrong question their entire lives. You see, in church their entire lives, they had always heard the question put this way, how much money do I have to give out of my income in order to, in order to do my part? Well, after studying the Gospels, they came out with a different principle. They said, the real question is, how much money do I dare keep for myself from what God is giving us? I think it's a wonderful uh, implication to draw from this passage. John Cortines and Gregory Balmer wrote up their uh, study in a... Um, in a book called God and Wealth. It's actually a remarkable book. And if you actually purchase that book, all the proceeds that they go to it actually go to Christian uh, ministries. But they actually said, you know, we are on the fast track to earning tons and tons of money and wealth in our life. But that money and wealth is not for us to invest in ourselves and in our own joy. That money is for us to invest in the gospel. We want to see how much of our income and our worth we can give away for the sake of the gospel throughout the course of our lives. That is leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel. What exactly does that look like in your life? I can't really fill in the details for you. I said I had one more story for you, but I actually have one more that I want to share with you. And that's my story. I want to share with you about how Autumn and I are seeking to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. This isn't how everybody leverages their life for the sake of the gospel. That's the way that we feel like God is leading us. In about 2008, I was a seminary student at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And I was wrestling through what I felt like God was calling me to do uh, with, uh, with my life, with the, with the ministry that I felt like He was leading me to. And I realized that God was showing me that I was gifted in two particular areas. Uh, one was just academics. I love studying God's Word. Uh, I love reading and writing about God's Word. Uh, I love teaching God's Word to other people. And so God kind of showed me that He was gifting me in some of these uh, academic ways uh, and pointing me perhaps to um, perhaps to get a Ph.D. and uh, enroll, uh, not enroll, but uh, get a job teaching future ministers at a school. But God gave me another passion while I was at Southeastern Seminary, and that passion was missions. Southeastern was great at uh, challenging its students to think about the Great Commission's uh, Great Commission, its implications for our lives, and that's certainly one thing that I wrestled with uh, while I was a student there. And so I had these two things that I felt so strongly that God was leading me to: academic study and teaching, and admissions. I think as I was thinking, you know, how, God, how do you want me to? Uh, which direction do you want me to go in this? What do you actually have for my life? And what God actually revealed to me is that He doesn't want me to choose one or the other of these uh, avenues of ministry. He wants me to actually combine them. God is calling me to theological education in a missionary setting overseas. 
where the theological education otherwise wouldn't be wouldn't be available to the people who would receive it. A couple of things helped confirm this call uh, in my life. I took a couple of mission trips when I was uh, uh, about to graduate from seminary. One was uh, one was to a town called Soweto. It's just after, uh, outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. I went down there with a missions team, and uh, we met a missionary, and I actually went with the missionary to a church that he had planted. Now I got to this church, and uh, it had wonderful believers in it, and I was expecting one of the believers to stand up and to preach the sermon for us at the church plant, right? But when we actually got there, it wasn't one of the believers of the church that stood up to preach the sermon. It was the missionary himself. And so I said, okay, he's the missionary. He certainly has qualified to speak about God's Word. I'll listen to him and ask him later. And so I did. Later I asked him, I was like, you gave a wonderful message, but why weren't the believers at the church that you've planted, why wasn't one of them charged with preaching God's Word? And I'll never forget what he told me. He's like, Cassius, this is absolutely the ideal, what I want to have happen in this church. This is what needs to happen in order for this to be a real church plant. But he just told me the men in this church simply do not feel prepared in order to teach this church. I was floored. I was like, well, what's it going to take to get them prepared? And he said, Casey, I mean, I, I could spend the next four to five years discipling these believers and training them in order to try and prepare them to preach, but he said, quite frankly, my missions organization will not allow me to do that. I'm called to plant churches, and once I've planted one church, I'm expected to move on and share the gospel and begin to plant another church. And he said, Casey, whether you like this or not, I actually agree with him. This I'm not called to camp out at one place for four or five years. I'm called to plant churches. And so he said, we're left in a little bit of a uh, bad spot here because these guys can come and learn from me and try and stay one step ahead of their congregation their entire uh, life of this church. That's not going to be a very good spot. So we don't really know what else to, to do for them right now. And I thought, theological education. That's what these guys need is somebody willing to plant their life uh, with them for four or five years in order to train them to study God's Word for themselves. Let me tell you another story. I was in a, did another mission trip soon after I left seminary uh, to Mumbai, India. Uh, and this one I'll never really forget uh, for as long as I live. Uh, the missionary that we met there in Mumbai, India said, you guys are going out. It was Sunday, and they said, you guys are going out to visit different Indian churches uh, this morning. And he said, Casey, you are actually going to the largest evangelical church in this area. He said, it's a very special church. Not only does the, the pastor, uh, not only is he the leader of the church, he actually leads the music of this church. He leads the singing. And so I was excited. I went to this church, and uh, lo and behold, yeah, this pastor got up and led the music. As far as I could tell, it was in Hindi, so I didn't understand it. But as far as I could tell, he did a great job. Everybody was excited to worship at that congregation. And then to my dismay, when the time for preaching came, this Indian pastor of the largest evangelical church in that area sat down and a 10-year-old girl stood up with no Bible and began to address the congregation for 30 minutes. I couldn't understand what she was saying, but I had a friend who had come with me who understood uh, Hindi, which is what she was speaking in. He said, Casey, she just talked about how she was wandering around the city one night and got scared and how God protected her. And I'm thankful that God protected her, but I'm dismayed that that congregation, the largest one in the area, left church that Sunday without hearing from God's Word. And the feeling that I got was that wasn't necessarily out of the ordinary. I got back to the missions place and told the missionary what had happened and he just wouldn't believe me. I mean, in his mind, people are showing up. That means the gospel's being preached and things are, are going well there. These are things that are confirming my call as a, a theological uh, educator overseas. One last story that I'll share with you. Uh, comes from my wife, Autumn. I'm talking about how God has confirmed my call to theological education overseas. The best way that he has done that is by introducing me to Autumn Croy and allowing me to marry her. Autumn was a missionary in two, uh, for two years after she graduated from college. 
uh, in Peru, South America. She was there for two years, and what she would do is she actually lived in a city inside the jungle, and her team would take trips outside um, outside of the uh, city that they were in to the different tribal people that were around him. She'd be gone for about two weeks to a month. Well, on her very last trip there, she was uh, knew she was about ready to go home. Nurse, uh, her leader said, go out one last time to these different tribal groups um, and tell us what's going on there. And so she went to one place uh, that they had that had received the gospel uh, about a year ahead of, uh, a year uh, before time, um, and was dismayed when she got there that nobody in the village could tell her who Jesus Christ was anymore. These were people who had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. At least they said they did a year ahead of time, a year before that. And now a year later, they're not even able to tell her who Jesus is. She went on that same trip. She went to another place, another village that had responded to the gospel. And when she found there, she found a lot of religious excitement, but it wasn't excitement about the gospel. You see, right after her team had went and proclaimed the gospel in that village, a group of seven-day Adventists had shown up and had distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this village that had responded so wonderfully to the gospel before now wouldn't even welcome her team into the village anymore. These are stories that just tear at Autumn and Ma's heart because we see the gospel going forth by wonderful missionaries, and yet we see uh, a huge need for theological education overseas. And so that's why we're seeking to go with a group called Training Leaders International in order to be theological educators overseas. Now, who, who is uh, Training Leaders International? Well, Training Leaders International is a missions coordinating uh, organization. They coordinate it with local uh, local churches in order to send missionaries overseas in order to teach in seminaries and in Bible colleges. Okay, according to TLI, over of the 2.2 million evangelical churches worldwide, 85 percent are led by leaders who have no formal theological education. 85 percent are led by pastors and leaders who have not been trained on how to teach and apply God's word uh, to the congregation. And the 15% this meaning is not spread evenly across the globe, right? I mean, that 15% is concentrated in places like America and Europe and maybe a few of the other big cities uh, around the world, okay? And so you get outside of that in the real world this is what you're faced with when you show up to worship on a Sunday morning like you are uh, today. Uh, you're encountered with a man who's doing the best that he can but has no real guidance or leadership on a, how to lead his congregation uh, in God's Word and in gospel ministry. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, I guess I was maybe getting a little discouraged, but I was thinking, how in the world am I going to convince people to contribute to our ministry through TLI? And then it's suddenly the thought dawned on me, it's going to be easy actually, right? Because here's all that I have to do. I have to find men who are faithfully preaching to their congregations on Sunday morning, faithfully preaching and expositing God's Word. And I have to go and uh, ask to speak at these uh, congregations like this one. And I have to tell you guys what you guys experience on at least a weekly, perhaps even two or even three times a week what you guys experience from God's Word, 85% of the churches in this world never get to experience that. Okay? 85% of the churches around this world never get to hear expository preaching from the pulpit or never get to be encouraged to how they can leverage their lives for the sake of the Gospel. So we are going with Training Leaders International. That's our mission-sending organization that's uh, coordinating with our church, Fisherville Baptist Church, in order to send us overseas. Uh, where exactly are they sending us? Well, we are going to a place called Natal, Brazil. Okay, And I'm going to be teaching at a, a school called simply the School of Christian Pastors. Now, if you can envision Brazil in your mind's eye, you can kind of think of it as kind of like a, 
a triangle or an arrow pointing out in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, Natal, Brazil is right at the tip of this triangle, right on the eastern seaboard of Brazil. And the School of Christian Pastors there is actually the vision of uh, a pastor in Natal named Sandro Eugenio. Uh, he is the pastor of uh, the Christian or the uh, Baptist Church of Natal, is what his uh, church is called. Sandro is actually a unique pastor in Brazil. This man has been committed to expository preaching for over 30 years at his church. He's seen remarkable growth in his church. He's got a wonderful ministry there. But you know what? As remarkable as it is for him to see his own ministry go, when I visited there in February, he shared a couple things with me. He shared his he shared with me that he's seen his own ministry go uh, grow during that time, but he's also seen a lot of other growth in his uh, town that he's not that excited about. You see, what he would um, we would he's seen a lot of churches grow, and uh, when he was driving me around town in, a, in his broken English, he he would point to these huge, magnificent-looking church buildings around Natal, and he would say, "Casey, he point at these churches," and he'd say. This church, lots lots of money, but no Bible. And I knew exactly what he meant. You see, in the Tal and in the rest of Brazil, um, they think of themselves as Christian, but they are not true followers, followers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Brazil is filled up with um, tons of people who are telling their congregations that if you, are, you will give money to this church, God is going to make you healthy. And God is going to give you even more money in return. And you will have such a wonderful life if you will just give money to this church. And Pastor Sandro sees this going all on all around him and it breaks his heart because he knows right now, currently, there is a new generation of pastors that are being brought up in Brazil. And he knows if they're not given a, a better vision, that that's exactly the kind of ministry that they are going to start themselves. And so he started the School of Christian Pastors in order to try and fight against that uh, that that tide. He got with uh, Training Leaders International and asked for their help, and they decided to send me. So, uh, talked about how uh, who we're going with and where we are going. Uh, let's talk about how you can help support us. We are in need of uh, two kinds of support, and we're going around to different churches and asking for support in these two ways. Uh, first way that you guys can support us is through prayer. Okay? So, how in the world can you help us through prayer? Well, um, everyone involved in this ministry is going to need your prayer. It's going to be tough for my family to take our, uproot our family from here. It's the only place we've ever had our family and go to a place like Natal, Brazil. It's going to be hard for the family that we leave here to see us take the grandchildren and take the nieces and nephews and go to a place like that. The School of Christian Pastors needs your prayer. You see, what they're doing is so against the, the cultural grain of that place. They are hoping to go to these pastors and say, you know, I know you can make a lot of money being a big pastor at one of these rich churches, but what we want you to do is actually have a gospel-focused, expository preaching-focused ministry. And we're trying to say, give up the money and focus on the gospel. They need your prayers if they're going to be successful in that. The students need your prayers. Because you see overseas, uh, and you guys know what this is like from having Adam as your pastor, the ministry doesn't stop just because you're in school or just because that you're a, uh, uh, just because you're a pastor. So these students that are coming to the School of Christian Pastors are coming when they get off of work. And that Sunday, they don't have time to work on their schoolwork. They have got to go and try and teach in their, in their little small congregations scattered all throughout Natal and the rest of the state. They need your prayers. So how can you support us in prayer? Well, uh, down front here and in the table as you first come in, we actually have a sign-up sheet for a newsletter. Autumn and I, right now, we're producing a newsletter every month. Um, we're hoping to keep it at, a, at an every-month basis, but... Uh, we might have to end up doing less as we go. But every month we're sending out a newsletter. Uh, and in that newsletter we have a bunch of different prayer requests. We have some stories about what God is doing uh, currently right now in our ministry. And we have a prayer request uh, over on a little bar. And so what's going to happen, if you sign up in our prayer list to 
Uh, if you uh, commit to supporting us in prayer and sign up on this list, you are going to get this newsletter delivered to your email box on a monthly basis right now. And what you're committing to do by supporting us in prayer is to open that email, read through the newsletter, see the prayer request, and actually pray for us, right? Maybe you could even print it out and keep it somewhere nearby your home where you could be encountered with it on a regular basis and be reminded to, to pray for us, right? And so that's what you're uh, committing to do if you commit to praying for us and for our ministry in Natal. Uh, receive that newsletter. Embrace, the, embrace it. Read it. See the things that we're asking for prayer about. Even read the stories that we're sharing and realize the things that we don't even realize we need prayer about. You can recognize through reading the stories that we're sharing with you and you can know to pray for those things as well. Next way we need your support is uh, simply financial support. We've worked with uh, TLI in order to create a responsible budget for missionaries overseas in Natal doing the type of work, uh, work that we're wanting to do. And so our responsibility now is to visit different churches and raise the support that we need in order to go. Uh, this budget includes uh, monthly expenses that uh, is going to come from people willing to donate to us on a monthly basis. It's also going to include one-time expenses um, to cover things like our training that we will need in order to go uh, and actually to cover the cost for us to go and get set up there uh, in Natal. Uh, any way that you could... Um, contribute to either one of these uh, budgets would be such a blessing to Autumn and I and such a blessing to the School of Christian Pastors and the ministry there. Uh, I want to close just by, uh, first of all, challenging uh, you for a couple of things. One, uh, first way, I want to challenge you to consider becoming a $10 a month partner with us. Now, why $10 a month? Well, the reason I'm suggesting $10 a month to you uh, as a member of this congregation is, first of all, I know if God's leading you to actually give more to our ministry, then you're not going to be able to tell God no, right? And so this $10 isn't a free pass for you to, uh, to ignore God on that front. Um, the reason I'm suggesting $10 is because I know that for some of you, $10 a month is going to be a strain on your monthly budget. I've been there. I've just graduated seminary for the last time, I hope. Um, I know what it's like to be on a tight budget. And for some of you, that $10 a month is actually the me money that you have worked out into your budget. I remember when I was a seminary student, I, I worked full time, and on Fridays I would be given an hour for lunch, and I would go to a coffee shop on Fridays. And I would sit and drink my coffee, and I would have a book with me that had nothing to do with what I was studying, and I would just sit down and enjoy some time reading just for me. It was my me time, right? But for some of you, that's what I'm actually asking you to give up, potentially. I'm asking you to sacrifice the, the me time, the me money that you have worked into your budget. I understand this is sacrifice, but I believe it's a way that you can leverage the things that God has given you for the sake of the gospel. For others of you, you are already given uh, $10 a month. You're given way more than $10 a month uh, to the ministries of this church and to missionaries, okay? I don't want your giving to other ministries and missionaries to stop just because the Croys have decided that we want to go to Brazil, right? I want to uh, see you uh, give and increase your um, giving to ministries, uh, to these different ministries. And so that's why I'm suggesting maybe just even $10 would make all the difference for missionaries like Autumn and I as we seek to go and start this ministry uh, through TLI and the School of Christian Pastors. One last thing, and I know not all of this is feasible uh, for everybody here, uh, both the prayer support and the, and the uh, giving financially to, towards our ministry. Um, but the one last thing that I'll suggest is uh, it would be wonderful even if the church would consider making us a part of its monthly budget. Now, little uh, individual people can't always give that much uh, to two missions in uh, ministry, but together you're able to come together and everybody chips in and is able to give uh, a little bit more significant amount. And so if that's something that Harrison Hills uh, is interested in or wants to uh, pursue, that would be a tremendous blessing to us. Uh, if you have any interest, we're actually staying for, for lunch with you guys. We're excited. Um, we have sign-up sheets for our prayer list, uh, like I said, down here and in the back. Uh, you also find our prayer card. 
Uh, you also find our first edition of our newsletter. We've got a couple of them printed out if anybody wants them. And we also have a donor slip that can kind of give you the information that you will need to give to us financially. It's got our donor link given there. You can also just email me. My email's on the slip. And um, we can get that information you'll, you know, that you'll need to us. So I'm sorry I went way over. I apologize to you. Let's, uh, I'm just going to invite Adam up and uh, he'll, he'll close something more. Okay. Lord, we thank you for this day, Father, that you've given us to uh, come and learn from your word, Lord. I pray, Father, uh, for ministries like the School of Christian Pastors in Natal. I pray, Father, for uh, just the ministry of all the people, uh, all the faithful ministers around your word, Lord, and pray that you would continue to add to their tribe. Father, I pray for Harrison Hills Baptist Church, Father. I pray that the members here would be convicted to leverage their lives for the sake of the gospel. Amen.